Good evening. It's time to get our worship service this evening. We're going to start tonight with number 115, 115. I don't know who's got our scripture and prayers and stuff, so I'm not going to announce that. They'll just come up when I tell them to. <laughs> That's the way this works. 115. Surround <clears throat> him with many crowns. Next song this evening is Wonderful Merciful Savior. Be on the screen only. Well, on the monitor, but you can't see the monitor. After the song, we'll have our opening prayer and scripture reading.
The scripture reading this evening comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as he as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Let me pray with me, please. Precious Heavenly Father, dear Lord God in heaven, we come before you this day as humble as we know how, dear Lord. Thankful for the day you've granted us, dear Heavenly Father. We thank so thankful for the blessings there within, dear Lord. Those blessings that we could see readily and easily, dear Heavenly Father, but also those blessings that we don't see until your work is done, dear Heavenly Father. And and we could see the end product and see that you were there all along, dear Heavenly Father. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, your protection and your provision, dear Heavenly Father. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together and to praise you, dear Heavenly Father, and to worship you. And we just pray that we do so in a manner that pleases you, dear Heavenly Father. If we don't, then Father, we ask that you correct us. We ask you to show us the way, dear Heavenly Father. Dear Lord, we ask that you be with those that are here tonight, dear Heavenly Father, that you bless them. Guide them always, dear Heavenly Father. Dear Lord, we ask that those that aren't here this evening, no matter the cause, dear Lord, we know that uh, you are long-suffering, dear Heavenly Father, and you're not willing that any should perish, dear Heavenly Father. And we just pray, dear Lord, that that, uh, that we can touch those that aren't here, maybe, that we can speak to those that, that, that choose not to come, dear Heavenly Father, and, and they will see the need, dear Lord, that, uh, and, the, and the wonderful gift that is offered to us through Jesus. Dear Heavenly Father, for those that are unable to come, dear Lord, we just ask that we know that you know whatever their situation may be, dear Heavenly Father, and, and you know more so than what we know how to ask, how to attend to that situation, dear Lord. We just place them in your hands, dear Heavenly Father, and, and pray they can be back with us soon. Dear Heavenly Father, we just ask you to be with us always, that you forgive us our sins, dear Heavenly Father. We're so thankful that you are our God, dear Lord, and there is none like you and above you. And we're so thankful for that that sacrifice of Jesus, dear Heavenly Father, that, that gave away that we didn't have, dear Lord, and that open tomb that gave us victory over death, dear Heavenly Father, we just ask that you help us that, 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 that we never have a day that that sacrifice is made in vain on our behalf. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you guide, guard, and direct every step we take, dear Lord. Place us on that narrow path. Dear Heavenly Father, if we stumble, if we fall, we pray that you, with your right hand, raise us back up, dear Heavenly Father, help us to stand again and to carry on. Dear Lord, we ask that you be with us always. Guide, guard, direct us. See us home to our, after this service has ended and be with us through the week so we may do, be about your, your business, dear Lord. Dear Lord, all these things we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Long invitation this evening is 319. 319. Mark that if you're going to use your book. Before the lesson tonight, number 701. Would you stand, please? 701. <clears throat> your eyes dark on every hand, and we cannot understand all the way Yeah. 
Well, that's better. I think that apologetics are necessary. Uh, I think they are helpful. I think that they actually build a strong foundation for your faith. There's a reason why you believe what you believe. At least it ought to be, right? Um, and so what, what undergirding does your faith have? The very essence of faith in Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us that there needs to be some, some basis there. And so what, what is that basis? Well, apologetics answers that question. So whenever you see this graphic come up, there's going to be a variety of different topics that we're going to discuss. But tonight is the Apocrypha. Now, you may not know what the Apocrypha is. Um, that's fine. You don't have to know what it is. <laughs> um, but I thought it might be important as we think about apologetic things, apologetic topics, to kind of cover this one. So if you don't know what the Apocrypha is, um, it is books, it's, a, it's a, lots of books, a multiplicity of books, um, written right after the Old Testament was concluded from Malachi on up until the time of John the Baptist or so. There's a series of books called the Old Testament Apocrypha that would fit into that category. There's a New Testament Apocrypha too. These books were written really after the first century and on down for the next couple hundred years. Writers will co-opt a famous name, a name that you're familiar with, like, like Barnabas or, or even Enoch from the Old Testament. They'll, they'll grab one of those names and they'll slap it on their, their letter, not in the hopes that you think that that person wrote that letter, but to get your attention. These books were never really intended to make you believe that they were inspired. Um, so we'll talk, we'll talk about all that and more in just a second. But <coughs> that's what the Apocrypha is. Now, when are you going to come in contact with it? You might have a Catholic friend. Their Bible is different than yours. Uh, it has extra books. And so the 66 that we have that the rest of the world has, um, they've added the Old Testament Apocrypha into the Catholic Bible. Why they did that and whether they should have done that, we can talk about that and we will talk about that tonight. I don't think that those things are inspired and I think we'll prove that tonight. Um, and so why they're in there is just completely a misunderstanding of the way inspiration works and uh, it's, it's a Catholic doctrine of these, we'll talk more about it later. <laughs> um, but so if you've got a Catholic friend, you may be familiar with the Apocrypha and it might come up. Um, the other reason or the other way it might come up is if you've ever searched the Internet or found a friend, usually in high school, that talks to you about the Book of Thomas or um, the Book of Enoch or, or Bell and the Dragon. Some of these are these apocryphal books. Um, they are fantastic stories, but that's what they are. They're, they're fanciful, fanciful stories. They're fantasy. Like we talked about this morning, uh, they were never intended to be believed as inspired. Um, they were intended to be good stories. Some of them, like First and Second Maccabees, uh, record historical events, but they are not inspired. So throw that in there as well. That's what the Apocrypha is. Uh, they're extra books, uninspired, that some have added into Scripture, like our Catholic friends. Um, and then the, on the other side of it, a lot of times you'll find a lot of confusion. Um, folks just kind of muddying the waters, these 
um, with, with these other books. And well, should that be in there? Did Jesus really have a wife? Well, um, one of one of the other books, I think it's the Book of Thomas, indicates that he that he married Mary Magdalene. And so, all these questions, uh, you may not be aware of where they come from, but they, they've kind of become pop culture questions. So, I think it's helpful to deal with stuff like this. So. We need to ask the first question is, who decided which books got in our Bibles? Being a little tongue-in-cheek here, but God decided which books got to be in our Bibles and which didn't. So let's, let's just do this real quick at the forefront of this lesson. How do you know that your Bible is inspired? How do you know which books are inspired in it? Um, is is Genesis inspired? Would would Joshua be inspired? What about Matthew or Jude or James? How do you know those books are inspired? Well, there's at least four ways. Um, <clears throat> when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, and we're going to use the same talk, uh, same terminology tonight, when we talk about the inspiration or lack thereof of the Apocrypha. We look at internal and external evidences. And so what does the book say within itself? Are, are there clues inside the book itself that would indicate to us that it is inspired? Is it possible for a human to write this book or is that something that's supernatural? No human could have possibly written this book as we find with, with Scripture. Um, external evidences are things that you'll find outside of that text, history, um, science, archaeology, all these kinds of things would be external evidences. And so do the Apocrypha have external evidences that would indicate that they would be inspired? Um, do they have internal evidences that would include that they or would indicate that they would be inspired? They don't. Uh, we'll talk about all that stuff in just a second. But before we got there, I just wanted to kind of give us a quick overview of why we believe that our Bibles are inspired. We have internal evidence for them being inspired, and we have external evidence for them being inspired. Uh, the internal evidence, there's predictive prophecy. That's a $10 word, right? But it basically means that God calls, He says some things are going to happen in the future, and those things happen. There's no way, for example, in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel prophesies about four upcoming kingdoms. Daniel is in the Babylonian Empire around 586, 500 uh, or so uh, AD, or excuse me, 500 or so BC, 500 years before Jesus is born. Daniel's hanging out in the Babylonian Empire. How does he know that Alexander the Great is going to conquer? How does he know that Babylon's going to fall? How does he know that the next empire, what it's going to look like? And he even talks about the Roman Empire. And then he talks about the church entering in to the Roman Empire, right? Coming on the scene during its day. So how does he know all those things? Well, God told him. This is evidence that God wrote this book, that it could not be written by just a regular person. Messianic prophecies would fit into this category. Someone once said there's, there's over 300 Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that we know, that we found um, in the New Testament. We, we find Jesus fulfilling at least 300, I think there's 318 of them, uh, but he fulfills that many in the New Testament. So someone has once said the, the chances of somebody randomly doing that would be like you filling the entire state of Texas with silver dollars. 
One of them's red. You drop that from a helicopter. Two days later, just anywhere in Texas, and then it's two feet deep. Silver dollars are two feet deep in the entire state of Texas. Two years later, you get dropped off out of a helicopter in the state of Texas. You bend down and you pick up the silver dollar, the red one. That's the chances of somebody just randomly fulfilling all the messianic prophecies, prophecies that Jesus did. This is not a random thing. Um, God foretold all, this, all these things were going to happen. So predictive prophecy is one of the pillars that we can stand on and know that our Bible is inspired. <coughs> Excuse me. The unity um, that our scriptures have would be another one of the internal evidences that our scriptures are inspired. So starting in, what, 1440, around 1440, Moses starts writing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, John finishes up Revelation somewhere around the turn of the century, 95, 97, somewhere around in there. John writes Revelation. So you've got about 1,500 years worth of writing written by something over 40 authors spanning 1,500 years across three different continents using at least three different languages. And it never once messes up. It never once makes a mistake. It never once contradicts itself. This is unity of Scripture. Um, it is evidence that no man wrote this thing. In fact, it would be outside of our capabilities to write something like this document that we've got in front of us. That's just the internal evidences. That's just the Bible speaking for itself, right? Does it claim to be inspired? Yes. Literally on every page, it claims to be inspired. You'll hear it saying, thus says the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to me. Not even to mention the verses like the one that Steve read for you tonight in, in, um, in, in Peter. Um, we've got the one in 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. All scripture is, do you remember? Theonostes, right? It's God breathed. He breathed it out. Um, and so it does claim inspiration and it has um, backed it up with even just the internal evidences but the external evidences are powerful in this regard as well. Um, it has something called historical accuracy. So when it talks about a people, like um, the Hittites is, is one of my favorite um, illustrations here. I think in 1906, um, the archaeological scientific community was making fun of Bible believers because they had never found a, the Hittite nation. And if you go back through and you read the Old Testament, the Hittites are major players. Um, they are the Babylon, the Babylonia, <laughs> wow. They are the Babylon of the ancient world. Um, so around the time of um, the, the, the Israelite wilderness wandering, um, all the way through the period of the judges, these Hittites are hanging around, and they are a massive player in that day and age. But until 1906, nobody had found anything, no inscriptions, no pottery, no nothing. And they had a massive capital city called Hattusa. We know its name, we know where it was, but they hadn't found it until 1906. And then they found the capital city, they found the, the massive library that talked all about um, the Hittite nation. And now it's, it's common knowledge that there really are and really were a Hittite nation. That's just one example. They found um, inscriptions to David, King David. They found inscriptions to Pontius Pilate as well as several other governors. Um, all these things have been backed up through archaeological uh, evidences. 
So it has historical accuracy. It also has scientific foreknowledge. I don't want to spend a ton of time here, but this is neat, and you need to know this if you don't already aren't already aware. Um, scientific foreknowledge is the Bible knows about science before it should know about science. So in Numbers chapter 19, Moses is writing a treatise on hand washing, basically. Uh, if you touch a dead body, you're unclean. You're unclean for seven days. You go out on the third day after you, wash a, uh, after you touch a dead body, you go outside the camp, you're all by yourself. Don't touch anybody because you might be contaminated, right? What if they had COVID? <gasps> so now you got to wash your hands. you got to wash it on the third day, right? Uh, and then you come back and you wash it again on the seventh day. And then you're allowed to come back into the camp. If you haven't dropped dead by the seventh day, you're probably going to be okay. So that's what Moses said. He, he had a specific um, mixture that, that you had to do. Turns out that it was the exact mixture for live soap with um, exfoliating particles in it. Isn't that cool? You guys use the exfoliating soap for your faces and stuff. And they, they've got those little granules on there. I'm the only one that does that. Okay, cool. Um, but they've got the little particles on there that you rub. And you have to rub and rub and rub and f- before they get off. You know what I'm saying? That those particles are in Moses' mixture. How in the world did Moses know about that? That's 1,500 years before Jesus was born. Moses is an Egyptian. He's raised as an Egyptian, right? So he's got access to all the massive Egyptian um, medical knowledge. They didn't know anything about this. The ancient Egyptian medical knowledge was way worse than um, early Americans. You know, George Washington was bled to death because we didn't know that he needed blood. We thought it was bad. At any rate, in 1850, there's a guy named Dr. Simmelweiss. Um, he's got a clinic uh, for um, expectant mothers, a labor and delivery clinic. He's got a couple of them in and around London. And he's got an abysmal um, death rate, something like 70, 80 percent of, or sorry, something like 20 to 30 percent of women die uh, after uh, giving birth in his clinics, and the baby dies too. And so this guy's a good doctor, and he says, well, what's going on here? Why, why is everybody dying? Um, comes to find out that the doctors are doing the autopsies, and then without washing their hands with, with real soap, they're going to um, the birthing mothers, and they're delivering the baby, and sepsis or whatever it is sets up and all they had to do was go back and wash their hands because he didn't know about germs until the 1850s right but Moses knows about germs 1500 years before Jesus was born and has a solution to fix it that our greatest scientific minds couldn't figure out until the early 1900s Simon Weiss comes up with this idea he tries everything um, I'll have to tell you the story in greater detail someday but he tries everything and nothing works. And he finally says, well, guys, what do you think? What if we just wash our hands? We'll use soap uh, and you don't get to wash in a communal bucket. You have to wash in your own bucket and we'll pour the water out and get new water. Uh, and then you dry your hand, not on the communal rag like we've been doing, but on a brand new rag. I don't think it's going to work either, <laughs> but we'll, we'll try this and see what happens. And sure enough, his, his mortality rates uh, start dropping. He tells everybody, he's excited. I figured it out. And, and so he tells everybody, and they laugh him out of the medical community. Nobody listens to him until a dying day. Fifty years later, they still don't buy it. It's like the early 1900s when it finally comes about that he was on to something. How did Moses know that 1,500 years before Jesus was born? That's scientific foreknowledge. So I spent a little bit longer on that than I wanted to, but there's that. So 
do those things match up with the Apocrypha? Well, let's take, let's take uh, some, some evidence here. Let's look at the evidence. <clears throat> ah, okay. Um, must be an old, okay. So there are a couple other things I don't have on the slide uh, in front of you, but the, old, the, uh, the Apocrypha, they don't even claim inspiration. Remember how we said that the Bible claims to be inspired? Thus says the Lord, the word of the Lord came to me. And, and then the random passages like 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, the one in Peter that Steve read for us tonight. The Bible claims to be from God. Can it back it up? We've already seen that it, it does so incredibly well. But these, these apocryphal books, they don't even claim to be inspired. Um, in fact, I've got an excerpt from one of them. It's called, the Pro, uh, it's called Ecclesiasticus, which sounds like our book of Ecclesiastes, right? But this one's called Ecclesiastic, Ecclesiasticus. This is what the writer says. He says, You are entreated, therefore, to read with favor and attention and to pardon us if in any parts of what we have labored to interpret we may have seen to fail in some of the phrases. He says, We may have said some of the stuff wrong. Please forgive us if we did. You never hear the Bible say anything like that, do you? Because the Bible's inspired and God doesn't make mistakes, right? This guy says, well, we might have, we might have made some mistakes and you're just going to have to overlook those things and appreciate you reading our book anyhow. So it never even claims to be inspired. The next one that should have been on the screen that apparently I left off was the New, Tef the New Testament authors never quote the Apocrypha, which is weird uh, because the book that they most quote from it's something called the Septuagint. So uh, the Septuagint is the Old Testament, not written in Hebrew, but written in Greek. Now, here's where the Catholics get their, apocryph their apocryphal, um, the Bible, their Bible with the apocryphal books contained in them, because the Septuagint had it in there too. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Septuagint's written a couple hundred years before Jesus is born, right? 300 or so uh, B.C. 200, something like that. So these books, a lot of them are have been written by then. The apocryphal Old Testament books have been written by then. And so they're included in the Septuagint. When Paul quotes, every single time Paul quotes the, New, the Old Testament, it's from the Septuagint. He's got a scroll in front of him, like you would have your Bible. He's got his scroll of the Old Testament. And he's looking at it, and he says, this is what God says. Never once does he quote from one of the apocryphal books. Nobody does. None of the New Testament authors quote from any of the apocryphal books, with the sole exception of Jude. So if you got your Bibles, turn it over to Jude. Let's deal with Jude. Um, there's a couple of odd passages that you'll find in Jude. Um, and here's what I think you do with them. Um, so you've got, <clears throat> you've got in verse 14, Jude verse 14, Jude's only got one book or one chapter, but in verse 14, he says this, it, <coughs> it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam prophesied <coughs> saying, behold, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all 
and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's Enoch's prophecy. Now, where's it at in the Old Testament? You, you go back and find it. It's not in there. Um, and so some people will say, oh, <coughs> that's evidence. I'm going to take this off. I'm getting hot. Um, that's evidence that Jude quotes from the apocryphal book of Enoch. And so Enoch needs to make its way in. And it is and has been historically one of the more favorite books because of this reason. <coughs> so, what are we going to do with it? This is contained in the book of Enoch. Here's what I think happened, though. I don't think Jude stole it from Enoch's book. I think this is an oral traditional saying. Um, we have these, right? A, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, right? Thanks, bud. Um, we have these proverbs that I've never seen any of them written down anywhere. But if I were to say them, you would be able to finish them, right? So I think something like that's going on here uh, in Jude. And let me, let me give you some, some internal evidence. Um, back in verse 14, look at the first couple words again. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying. He didn't write these things. He said them. You ever seen that? He didn't write them. He said them. So if he's quoting from Enoch's book, which this saying's found there too, if he's quoting from that book when he said writing, I think it's possible he would have said writing. But he doesn't do that. He says, Enoch said this. Um, so I think it's possible, at least possible, probably likely in my opinion, that Enoch, the book of Enoch, and Jude are borrowing from the same source this oral proverb that Enoch really did say that wasn't written down by anyone until Jude wrote it down. I think that's what's going on. I think that's what's going on with Moses is... Um, the fight over Moses' body earlier uh, in the book of Jude as well. So, none of the New Testament authors quote uh, the Apocrypha, and that's substantial because they obviously had access to it in the Septuagint, but they chose not to do so. Um, let's see. The, uh, the last one you need to know uh, about internal evidence in the Apocrypha is there are errors. There are countless errors. Um, there are historical errors where they get the history wrong. There's geographical errors uh, where they get the geography wrong. And there's moral errors where they say things like murder is okay and acceptable in certain situations. Let me give you a couple. Um, there's, a there's a creation contradiction. It says... Um, rather than the creation being spoken into existence from nothing by the word of Almighty God, as affirmed in scriptures, obviously Genesis 1 would play into that. The, the Apocrypha has God creating the world out of formless matter. That's in the wisdom of Solomon. Indicating that there was 
something there. It's not created ex nihilo, right? It's not created out of nothing. It's he had something and he created everything else out of that. That's not what the Bible teaches. Um, the Bible says that he created it out of nothing. Um, another one was uh, according to the prophet Jeremiah, Nebuchadnezzar burned Jerusalem on the 10th day, the 5th month of the 19th year of uh, of um, uh, of uh, the Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Subsequent to this, both the prophet and his scribe Baruch were taken into Egypt. That's what the Bible says. At this time, uh, the apocryphal claims that Baruch was actually in Babylon. It's got some history wrong there. Um, <clears throat> there's, there's just so many of these. Um, when, did, uh, when did a guy named Tobit die? The, Tobit's another one of the apocryphal books. So when did he die? Well, Tobit is said to have lived 158 years. That's in Tobit 14, verse 11. Yet supposedly he was alive back when Jeroboam revolted against Jerusalem, and he was still alive when the Assyrians invaded Israel, spanning about 210 years. So how old is this guy? It's got a ton, the Apocrypha does, uh, in its various books, a ton of false doctrines. Uh, the Apocrypha teaches that the erroneous doctrine of the pre-existence of the soul, suggesting that the kind of body one now has is determined by the character of his soul in a previous life, so like reincarnation. The, uh, the Apocrypha buys into that. Um, it's just, you, you've got to Google these things. They pray for the dead in the Apocrypha. In the Apocrypha. Uh, this is what he says um, in 2 Maccabees. Wherefore he made the propitiation for them that had died, uh, that they met, might be released from their sins. Uh, so you've got a little bit of purgatory coming in there. This is where the Catholics get their uh, their doctrine of purgatory from. Um, alms for sins, that's another old Catholic doctrine, uh, right? That's in uh, Tobit. He says, it is better to give alms than to lay up gold. Alms doth deliver from death, and it shall purge away all sin. Where's that found out in the Bible? It's not. Um it uh, condones magical potions. It applauds murder. Uh, and so all of these, along with various other considerations, lead only to the conclusion that the apocryphal cannot be included in, in Scripture, right? There's no internal evidence uh, for it to be inspired. In fact, all the internal evidence points hard away from this thing being inspired. Let's look at a little bit of the external evidence. I think this is powerful as well. Um, there are some old, like really old, lists of Scripture. Uh, in fact, one of the guys that um, is the oldest, the oldest one that we know of, is a guy named Melito of Sardis. He's writing somewhere around 170 A.D., about 170 years after Jesus has died, about 70 years after John dies. This guy named Melito of Sardis is writing, and he's writing all the books that he knows that are inspired. It's a pretty big thing to do in during his time period. He's not the only one that's going to do it. There's a couple of other guys. Um, their names are difficult to say. <laughs> Gregory of Nazinus and Amphilikos of Iconium. Over the next 200, 250 years, uh, these three guys are going to produce these lists. They're not the only ones. These lists are popular. Uh, here's some of the, the inspired books that I know of. Interestingly enough, every single book that you know of in Scripture is on these lists and not a single one of the apocryphal books are on there. So none of the ancient lists have um, the apocryphal books 
noted as inspired. Um, <clears throat> the last one we, we really need to look at is, is the Apocrypha, uh, the Apocrypha <laughs> was written during the silent years. So <clears throat> flip over to Malachi chapter 4. Let me show you this real quick. <clears throat> and I'll try to stop coughing in your ear. Malachi chapter 4. <laughs> so Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, right? After Malachi finishes his prophecy, God goes dark. He doesn't talk for 400 years. And he kind of lets him in that he's not going to say anything for 400 years. It's pretty common accepted knowledge among the Jewish people that he wasn't going to say anything for 400 years. Or at least he wasn't going to say anything up, up until this point um, that he's going to tell you. So what is that point? When's he going to start talking again? Well, <clears throat> Malachi tells you. Malachi 4, starting in verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So when's God's next word going to be? Is it going to come from uh, somebody right, uh, 30 years after Malachi, like, like he's been doing? That's, that's been his M.O. for a very long time now. Uh, one prophet will rise up, he'll give his prophecy. 30 years later, maybe this guy's died or, or, or he's still prophesying maybe, but 30 or 50 or 70 years later, there's a new prophet in town and he's, he's telling you God's words. So is, is that what he's going to do now? It, it's not, is it? He said, there's going to come a time when there's going to be a prophet like Elijah and I'm going to speak through him and he's coming right before the awesome day of the Lord, right before Jesus comes for the first time. Elijah, the prophet like Elijah, is going to come back and he's going to be my spokesperson. And so all the apocryphal books were written after Malachi and before John the Baptist. It's called the silent years. So he's already said, I'm not going to talk during this time period. You want a word from the Lord, you go back and read the Old Testament because I'm not saying anything new. You know what I want from you and you're refusing to give it to me. So just one more Evidence that um, that the Apocrypha does not belong in our Bibles. I know we went through that really fast. Uh, but remember, internal and external evidences. Um, and I think, honestly, the biggest nail to the coffin in the Apocrypha is it doesn't claim to be inspired. So uh, if your friends bring up, well, why don't you... Why don't you read the book of Tobit or what about the book of Enoch or what about 2nd Maccabees or whatever? Some of them are good history, like Maccabees. Um, they may even, probably even, record history right. At least Maccabees may do that. It may be the only one. The other ones are like Bell and the Dragon. Um, it is good fantasy. It's a good story, but it's not nowhere near inspired. And you don't have to read very far through them to see that it's not inspired. It doesn't read like scripture. It has all these errors. It has a very low view uh, of, of, of morality. Um, a variety of things start tearing down the Apocrypha. And you don't have to read very far into it to figure that stuff out. 
So, um, next time one of your friends says, well, why don't, well, what about the, what about the book of Ecclesiasticus? And you'll say, well, it's just full of errors, isn't it? It doesn't read like the Bible. It doesn't even claim to be inspired. So, I hope maybe this has been helpful for you. Um, I think this is an important topic, just apologetics in general. We need to know why we believe what we believe. Christianity is a thinking religion. It's a logic-driven religion. Um, it ought to be emotional, too, right? Um, but this, the reasons you believe what you believe ought to have bedrock uh, foundations underneath them. They ought to have pillars um, hoisting up the reasons you believe that this book really is from God. He really wrote this. And there are a variety of books that other people were going to say, he wrote those too. No he, no, he didn't. And, well, why do you believe that? This is why. The internal evidence says there's no possible way God wrote that. The external evidence says the, there's no possible way God wrote those books. So we have uh, a faith that is undergirded um, with logic. So I hope that's been helpful. Maybe, maybe some of that stuff has stuck out to you and, and you'll be able to use it in the future. Um, if tonight, if you haven't been baptized into Christ, you are still lost in your sins, but there's no need to stay in that condition. Um, the, the wonderful news, the good news that he gives us is that you can be saved if you're willing to submit your life to him, to give over everything to him. He can have you your sins washed away through the power of his blood. Tonight, you've probably already made that decision and you could be struggling with the world. It's able to get its hooks into us, convince us of things that we do not need to be convinced of and things that are detrimental, that only weigh us down. Tonight, if you're struggling, we want to pray for you that you can be everything that God would have you to be. Why don't you come as we stand and sing? I've heard of a land of joy and peace and wonderful life. A beautiful place of magic where the skies are bright. Where all who believe the Savior here forever to stay. And I can say my praise is mine, so I can't wait. I'm going that way, I'm going that way. And Jesus the Savior, I adore. Yeah.
Good evening, church family. A couple announcements announcements before we are dismissed. As a reminder, uh, this Wednesday, Stepping Stone Supper, chicken and noodles is on the menu. Um, also, uh, tonight, after uh, services, the teen, uh, teen gift exchange at the Williams House. Also, this coming Tuesday, um, uh, Ernie Hall will be here to talk to us about how to plan uh, your funeral. Uh, that, that's here at the building at 6.30. Next Tuesday is Young at Heart at 10.30. Um, the mission team is needing some ribbon, bows, boxes uh, for holiday gift wrapping at Huntington Mall. Um, also, holiday cookie exchange is December 14th. That's a Thursday at 6.30 at Linda White's house. Uh, ladies bring two dozen cookies and finger food, and one dozen for me, um, and Brian. Don't forget, I can't forget Buddy Brian. Uh, also, college and young adults gift exchange uh, after Wednesday services at the Parker's house. Um, also, um, we're st are we still needing a teacher? Okay, we're still needing a teacher for preschool on Wednesday night. If you can help out with that, please see Jeremy or Connie uh, for that. Uh, remember to continue to keep our eighth graders in your prayers as they travel to D.C. Uh, this week. Uh, they leave tomorrow morning. Um, also, remember to continue to keep Jimmy Wilgus, Jim Haney, Jim Martin, Chuck Davidson, and Jackie Hutchinson in your prayers as they continue with their cancer treatments. Keep uh, Judy and Marvin Jordan in your prayers as they uh, are they're dealing with COVID. And there are so many others dealing with COVID right now. It seems like it's coming back around. Uh, so remember uh, all those people and, and the rest of y'all stay safe as well. So um, also keep Carolyn O'Lynn in your prayers. Keep Friday Simpson in your prayers as well. Uh, keep Terrell Spitzer in your prayers, Beverly Edwards and Jerry Stevens. And we mentioned this morning about Liam Young. He's uh, a four-month-old baby who is having surgery tomorrow, so keep him, keep Liam in your prayers, and also keep Becky Zimmerman in your prayers as well. Um, that's all the announcements I have. I know that was a lot, and I went through them really quick, um, but uh, if you had not had the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper this morning, you may leave now and go in the conference room. We'll sing one more song and be dismissed in prayer. Close the night with How Excellent Is Thy Name.
Let us pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, the opportunities that we've had to come here this morning and this evening and to hear your word and sing songs of praise to you, Father. Father, it was our desire that everything said and done here was pleasing to thy sight. Father, we ask that you be with us in our walk as we leave here this evening and walk out into the world, that you hold us in your hand, you protect us, and you guide us, Father, that we may be the light and example that you want us to be. Father, thank you for Jesus and the love that he had for each of us, that he went to the cross for our sins, and he gave us the opportunity to live with you in heaven. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.